0: Welcome to the February 2014 podcast for the Journal of Parental and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Kelly Tappenden. I'm Editor-in-Chief of j and a Endowed Professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. My guest today is Dr. Piggy Gunter, who is the Senior Director for Education, Advocacy, and Research Affairs at the American Society for Parental and Integral Nutrition, and she's here to talk to us about the paper published in the February 2014 issue of JPN entitled Malnutrition Diagnoses in Hospitalized Patients, United States 2010. Uh, welcome, Dr. Gunter. Thank you, Dr. Tappanen. We know that malnutrition is associated with poor outcomes. Many studies over several decades have shown us that malnutrition among hospital patients will increase uh, their length of stay, increase their complications, and increase their readmissions. We're now looking at malnutrition in a different way, of course, than we have traditionally with the new diagnostic criteria published by both Aspen and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. What you've done, though, is go with your co-authors to look at the ICD-9 codes and understand the diagnoses that are being made nationally. Can you tell us about the impetus for your work? Sure.
1: As you said, malnutrition is becoming um, quite a hot topic, and there are many studies looking at malnutrition, in particular the rates of malnutrition in hospitalized patients. The range of those studies varies widely from 20% 20% to about 70% in some selected populations. The concern with that is that they are selected populations and that many studies have looked at high risk populations within the hospitals. We were quite curious to try and develop a national look at the whole hospitalized population in the U.S. and went and looked at the Healthcare Cost and Utilization Project. We have used these databases in the past, or the Clinical Practice Program at Aspen has used these databases in the past to look at utilization of parental and enteral nutrition. So what um, the Malnutrition Committee of Aspen did was select undernutrition ICD-9 codes for malnutrition in both adults and pediatric patients, and went to the most current, which was the 2010 data at the time, in the national inpatient sample. And we looked at the pure numbers of patients who showed up with one of these malnutrition diagnoses and found, much to our dismay, that only those coded ended up to be about 3.2% of the entire population of hospitalized patients. That was a bit concerning, but when we stepped back and looked at it, we realized that there are many hospitalized patients who you would not think of to be at risk for malnutrition, such as those who perhaps came in for a one-day surgery or orthopedic procedure, all of those full-term live births, patients who come in with chest pain just for a day or so. So looking at the entire population of hospitals in a way that made sense, However, we still know that there are a lot of at-risk patients. We then looked at those patients who did have this diagnosis of malnutrition and compared them to those who did not. This HCUP database allows us to look at patient demographics, hospital characteristics, admission and discharge characteristics, and then um, comorbid procedure and comorbidities. Um, we also looked at the parenteral and nutrition therapy rates and utilization as well. And interestingly, like many other studies, our findings when comparing those diagnosed with malnutrition compared to those that did not have this diagnosis was that indeed there still was a high propensity to older patients having malnutrition, patients who come in emergently, Patients who needed after-hospital care, including transfers to other hospitals or home health care. And there was even a rate of of four times as many patients died in the hospital that had a malnutrition diagnosis as, as those who did not. So with those findings, we really began to try to summarize and think about why so few patients were coded. And we think there's really an underreporting and an underdiagnosis of malnutrition. Again, because there isn't a specific, has not been up to this point, a specific assessment and diagnostic tool. And there is a lack of education. Coding is done from physicians' discharge summaries and not necessarily, the coders don't necessarily go through the charts and pull out all of the factors they are not allowed to diagnose themselves. So I think this points to many other sets of work that we've done recently that you all, that you, Kelly, and the Academy have been involved in as well, in terms of trying to come up with a consistent assessment tool, trying to make sure that it's feasible and valid, trying to educate all clinicians to make sure people are aware of malnutrition, aware of its consequences, and and really the ability to diagnose and code that.
0: It does bring up interesting issues. I, too, was very surprised to see the low level of malnutrition that was coded for in in these patients. Um, And and I think you're right. It it does represent such an opportunity for us to start, continue educating regarding the new diagnostic criteria and develop a tool for for the abuse. Um, but also simple things like the fact that malnutrition can be used as a complicated condition for the primary diagnosis and increased reimbursement that way. You know, really these institutions are leaving money on the table if they aren't recognizing malnutrition when it exists in these patients. Absolutely.
1: The good news is even on these re- – these absolute numbers are very low. We did go back to 1993 through 2010, and I even have the 2011 data, and looked at the percentage of hospital discharges with malnutrition diagnoses, and when normalized per those total patients, it has risen in 1993 from about 1%, and actually the 2011 data is up to 3.9 percent. So there is clearly a trend, though it's very low. Um, there's clearly a trend of people beginning to recognize this and beginning to code
0: it. You said the 2009 data is 3.9 uh, percent. 2011. The 2011 data. Pardon me, because if you look at Figure One and extend that curve, then in this paper, the 2010 that really does indicate a- Sharp curve compared to what it had been in the previous 16 years or so. Yeah, uh, so absolutely. that's very good news. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's and remember, kind of- this data takes a couple of years. You know, the rec- most recent data is 2011, so it'll be really interesting to see the education work that we've been done and and hopefully it reflecting better upon um, upcoming years' data.
0: Data. Very so so That is condition- uh, encouraging. Let me ask a final question, and that is, have you been able to do a subset analysis? You spoke about the factors or the demographics of those patients who did or did not have malnutrition. Were you able to do a subset analysis in medical, surgical, emergent-type patients?
1: No, we did not. We probably can do that in future work. This was an overview paper. We did do an analysis of adults only and pediatrics only, and found that pediatric patients get diagnosed more often, and those data and posters will be presented at CNW 14. And so we did do a breakdown, and we're going to try and do a breakdown on 65 and over, where those patients are most vulnerable for malnutrition, and we're gonna try and take a look at those
0: folks as well. Very good. So for those listeners who will not be attending Clinical Nutrition Week 14 in Savannah, those abstracts are available on the j website, so you can go and see see those data. I am glad to hear that the pediatric patients are um, being diagnosed earlier. Of course, we want all patients to be diagnosed appropriately, um, but it's such a critical issue for children. Yes, absolutely. Dr. Gunter, thank you so very much for your time today and your important work. Diagnosis and toxic like patients.
1: Okay, thanks so much and thanks for um having me. Have a
0: good day. My